0: for Stephen Henderson on this edition of the podcast, and there's big changes coming to Oakland County. It was recently announced that there'll be a new partnership between the county and the city of Pontiac to redevelop portions of the city's downtown. That's going to include $10 million in investment from the county, $50 million from the state, all to go towards helping not only remove some old buildings from the area, but also to bring in county employees and hopefully drive some business to the area. So what exactly will it look like? can the city of Pontiac expect? Why was now the time to do it? To answer these questions and more, I sat down with Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter.
1: Nick, great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm glad that you're here too, because I was actually recently in Pontiac uh, just this past weekend randomly. And I was struck by how much, first of all, I don't get up there as much as I used to, but I also loved the fact that the communities that I saw there, right? Because I was just hanging out with some friends at a home and there was really loving community environment. And then I also saw the Phoenix Center downtown. Now, I actually think it's kind of a cool location, but I know it's been an eyesore for a lot of people. So I kind of want to just start there, as I know the Phoenix Center is kind of at the heart of what's happening here. What is the plan for Oakland County when it comes to Pontiac and that building?
1: Yeah, it's it's not what it used to be, the Phoenix Center. And really, the Phoenix Center is simply a parking deck that they put an amphitheater on the top of. And it seemed like a great idea at the time. But the problem with it is a couple of things. Number one they built it right in the middle of their downtown main street, which is Saginaw Street. So Mm. it cut off all that office area from the rest of downtown. It's really hard to get from those Ottawa Towers down to the rest of downtown. So it did that. But the other thing is, it just hasn't been maintained very well. There hasn't been a concert at the Phoenix Center since 2011. Uh, So it's in pretty bad shape. That was
0: Big Sean. I guess he brought the house down.
1: That's exactly right. Um, Very good. Um, So the idea is um, that the County has purchased not only the old Phoenix Center parking deck, but the two uh, parking, I mean, uh, office buildings on either side of it. They're called Ottawa Towers, Tower 1, Tower 2. One of them is, is mostly full. Uh, the tower that's closest to Woodward is about 80% occupied, a lot of folks in there, including the state of Michigan. The one on the other side used to be owned by General Motors. They're the, the last tenant in the building um, back in 2014. They left, and it's been vacant ever since. So the, the, the idea is uh, buy the properties, buy those three parcels, and the adjoining land, and then tear down the Phoenix Center, mm-hmm. reopen Saginaw Street, so that you so that it's a vibrant, active street between the buildings, and then bring county employees to that the old General Motors Tower Two building, fill it up with up to six hundred county employees, um, which is a pretty significant amount of folks, right? It would be yeah, uh, and uh, and which would hopefully do a few things. It would spur. Um, activity downtown. That's 600 extra people that might go eat lunch downtown, shop in the shops and that sort of thing. But even more important, my hope is that this project could act as a catalyst for private developers who say, wow, this is a place to invest in. There's good things happening here. This is a city on the rise. And uh, I, I believe it'll be a catalyst for other development as well.
0: Yeah, Boniac has a really uh, mm-hmm. walkable area when things are working well uh, downtown. I've had great times there also. Yeah. Home of Arts, Beats & Eats, for example, for yeah. a good stretch of time. A lot mm-hmm. of things can happen there. It seems like there's a lot of intentionality with this decision from you. So I want to know, why, now, why was now the time for mm-hmm. this investment in this project?
1: Well, it probably helps that I used to be a mayor of a town that needed some TLC, and yeah. that's Ferndale. Yeah. I was the mayor of Ferndale for nine years. And so I've seen what you can do when you have a town with the right bones and the right assets that just need some intentionality. And that's what we did in Ferndale, and that's what I, I think is possible uh, in Pontiac. Now, I'm not the mayor of Pontiac, so this we're doing this in collaboration with the folks. So let me tell you, because— this project couldn't have happened two years ago, and I don't think it could happen two years from now. The stars sort of aligned in a certain amount of ways, and, and here's how. Number one, the leadership in, in Pontiac totally changed over uh, a year and a half ago. They have a brand-new mayor and a brand-new council. That, And this isn't a criticism of the old council and mayor, but they, they, they came with a different vision, a different energy, and a different willingness to, to partner with the county to do something big. Uh, so that was critical. The second thing is there was a lot, there is a lot of federal funds Eat flowing either through the to the county or or through the state uh, to make something like this happen. The COVID dollars right. are out there. And that's not, you know, I've been in politics for 20 years. I've never seen an influx of revenues like we've seen over the last couple of years. And it's going fast. You know, the legislature is not going to have this money forever. So it required a big, audacious ask of the legislature because we didn't have the funds ourselves to make this happen and neither did Pontiac. So we had to go to the legislature and ask them to, to help us as well. And then I think the third thing that really solidified it for me is uh, I, you know, I'm, I've just started serving my fourth year as county executive. When I got there, Um, We didn't have a really good functioning capital improvement plan list. Uh, We have a lot of buildings, 45 buildings on our campus, a lot of them in different states of repair or disrepair. We hadn't done a really good job of uh, analyzing and evaluating uh, what those buildings were like. So we hired a consultant, and we did a, a very comprehensive study of our buildings, and it turns out that there's about $550 million in short-term improvements that need to happen to our buildings. We haven't been investing in them the way that we needed to. So the other benefit of this project to me is that when we move when we eventually move these 600 people to back to downtown Pontiac uh, we can take some buildings offline we can defer maintenance on some of those we can we can avo- cost avoid mm. some of that repair so I think it, that's an, an even uh, a bonus to us doing this from a, a financial perspective
0: that's very good again we're talking with executive Dave Coulter County executive for Oakland County about this new plan to collaborate with Pontiac uh, executive Coulter I'm glad you did bring up that uh, there is a change in administration and that may have greased the wheels to getting this done, But I think you can also understand, especially with a long range, a long history of L. Brooks Patterson and county executives that didn't seem to have as much interest in Pontiac Mm -hmm. to say the least, and uh, a very uh, acrimonious relationship, losing your city uh, police department, there could be some reticence to have some trust, I think, sometimes with uh, other entities. So what would you say to people who live there now about why they should be able to trust the project this time, how they can have input, and why this time it will be a little bit different?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And when the mayor and I first started talking about this idea at the early part of this year, the first thing I said, and I've said to him all the way along is, I don't want to be appearing like we are imposing some grand plan on the city. This has to be collaborative. If we can't do this collaboratively, I don't want to do it because I don't want the perception or the reality that this is something being forced on the community. Uh, again, I know that as being mayor, I wouldn't have wanted someone to come in and tell my community what we need. And so uh, a, a big part of this project going forward now is going to be a series of, of town halls and community engagement. We want to hear from the community. What do you want to see in this property? Because we're going to be able to develop the property as well there's going to be green space there's going to be entertainment opportunities there's going to be you know a a lot of ways that we're going to try to activate this this property and we want to do it in collaboration and so it was very important to me that uh the council and the 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 city and the county worked out a memorandum of understanding so that we're on the same page about what you they want and what we need and I was delighted that the city council approved it unanimously because that told me they represent the people. They they heard from their residents. And that was important to me. I didn't want to do a, a deal that passed by one vote. I, wa- I wanted this to be something that Pontiac could be proud of. And I, I hope when we're done, they are.
0: We do hope that means a lot of buy-in. And we've got a call right now from someone who does live in Pontiac. Paul in Pontiac, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
2: Yeah, So so my question is, um, not that I'm opposed to this kind of a project in the city, but what does that do at the neighborhood level in the city of Pontiac? What kind of of effect will that type of development uh, spur or bring on for um, the individual citizen who's lived there their whole life? Yeah, you know, um, I I appreciate a lot of the things that happen in Pontiac. But the majority of those, especially in downtown Pontiac, are geared towards those who are outside of the city of Pontiac?
0: Yeah, yeah, Paul, not residents. Paul, that's a, a fantastic point. I do appreciate that. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I know, again, you're not the mayor; you are the county executive, so you have different levers that you can pull. Uh, and you did uh, mention a little earlier you're hoping that it brings some investment. But people will wonder why not directly pool those funds to the people as opposed to doing it through this mechanism. So why are you doing it this way?
1: Yeah, well, the, you know, downtown is important, but I I appreciate and respect that perspective and and. And frankly, the the county is investing in Pontiac in a lot of other ways as well. We just took, uh, we just helped manage the largest park in Pontiac, which is Hawthorne uh, Park, and we're gonna make it. Pontiac Oaks and make it part of the county system. Uh, It will still be owned by the people of Pontiac, but we are gonna invest millions of dollars from ARP and other sources to make that a premier park that all the residents of Pontiac can be proud of. There's a number of other programs uh, that we've been supporting through our ARP dollars and in other ways. So I get that right now this is the big shiny new project and it's downtown and, and it may seem that way, but I would just assure the residents that we, I've been talking and we've been working with the entire council and mayor on projects throughout the city. Uh, we, we we gave a grant to the senior center because we wanted to make sure that the senior center there um, had the resources that they need. So there's uh, we're looking at Pontiac from a lot of different perspectives. It's
0: good. It's good. We'll keep yeah, we'll keep an eye out on that. I do wonder about the decision to go to Pontiac as opposed to maybe another city, right? Troy, currently the most populous mm-hmm. city. A lot of people there. Maybe you could invest mm-hmm. in that location, although I think they're doing all right. Uh, I did look at a map, though, and saw that Pontiac is much closer to the middle of, of Oakland County. So that made sense. And it is the county seat. But it is the county seat. I think right. that's the difference. Yeah. It is
1: our county seat. It's where the, the uh, county government is supposed to be located. And go, it's right. mostly located there. But my office was moved about 20 years ago off our campus on the Pontiac side of Telegraph to the other side. So my office is literally in Waterford. I I just, there's something (laughs) odd about that to me. Pontiac is our county seat and that's why we need to be investing in our county seat like we did back in the 60s when the the, the county court was there and lots of of stuff was going on from a county perspective downtown.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I think this is a good idea and we are happy to hear about more intentional investment there. But you did mention that a lot of this is being done with uh, ARPA funds. Uh, So as we start spending down the uh, relief fund's are there is there a plan moving forward on how we would fund this project? For example, I've I've seen that it will cost up to 120 million dollars, but I've only seen 60 accounted for. So yeah. where are we plan on getting that other 60 million?
1: Yeah, the budget includes things like federal grants that we believe we can get for things like infrastructure, because mm-hmm. this, this that 120 includes everything. So it's reopening Saginaw Street, re, redoing Saginaw Street, uh, which there are federal grants for. The other big piece, because there, there there is a, a sort of a a, a budget gap that will be filled by a private developer. We're going to do, even though the ask of the legislature was big and audacious, uh, we didn't get it all. Uh, we asked for $85 million, which is what we thought we needed totally. Mm-hmm. that They looked at us like, are you crazy? So they gave us 50, and we said we can take that. But what we have to do instead is do a public-private partnership on the deck. So we're going to put out an RFP to work with a private developer to help build the deck who will make the investment uh, and, and get revenues from that going forward. All so. Right.
0: Yep. Very good. Well, uh, you know, we've spoken a lot about this Pontiac project, but before I let you go, since I have you here, anything else you're really excited about going on in Oakland County that you think people need to know about?
1: Wow. Uh, That's a great question. Uh, I'm I'm still giddy, I'll be honest with you, uh, about last year's transit millage we you know one of the things I disagreed with Brooks Patterson on for the last 20 years was the fact that we the county used to allow communities to just opt out of bus service transportation services and so we had this Swiss cheese County some some cities in some cities out you can you can pick up a bus here but you can't get off there Uh, I I felt like that was a flaw for a long time and last year we asked the voters I said what do you think about an all-county in millage for transit and we passed it and so we are one of the things we're working on now is expanding services, transportation services, to every community in Oakland County uh, so that no matter where you're at, you'll be able to have... A- a decent, basic amount of transit services like to places like Novi and Rochester Hills that you couldn't go to before. So Mm -hmm. we're working on that sort of behind the scenes now, trying to expand those services. But I think when we're done with that, that's going to be another game changer for our county.
0: Well, that's going to have to do it for us on this portion of Detroit Today. But Executive Coulter, thanks so much (laughs) again for stopping by and giving us the insight into this new project. Thanks, Nick. When we return, as we mentioned, and start our discussion about Pontiac, why is it important for investment to occur in city centers, downtowns? It's a question that's been on my mind a bit, especially with this new investment that's happening. And we're going to get into that project, why it's important. And we're going to speak with someone who is an expert in city and regional planning. That's Professor Harley Etienne. And that's coming up next on Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin in for Steven Henderson as we're discussing the importance of city centers uh, with the announcement of investment in the city of Pontiac. Big dollars coming there from the state as well as Oakland County, planning to move a lot of its businesses, or I should say, a lot of its county buildings and employees planning on moving that in to Pontiac. But why is that important? In fact, we had a call from someone saying, how does this investment help the people? And that's kind of where we wanna jump off with this conversation, because when we think of city centers, that's not necessarily the, the only way we could develop our cities, right? With things like remote work happening, people have been moving out to the suburbs, rural communities. But sometimes, a lot of times, we think that the default is to have a city where you have a very dense population in the city center, or at least business activity there. But why has that been how these things have developed, and why is that important? How important are cities to our developments as a society, and uh, how should that be moving forward? Here to help us answer these questions and a little bit more, I'm joined by Associate Professor of City and Regional Planning at The Ohio State University, Harley Etienne. Harley, or Professor Etienne, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate being
0: here. Yeah, I appreciate having you here, too, because cities are a thing that I've been thinking about a lot, talking about with producer Sam Corey, and we've been wondering about just the importance of cities. You know, back in the day, you needed to be close to the water in order to uh, have a developing city, but as we get larger and we learn how to export these things, we still see city centers come up often. So as we talk about reinvestment in Pontiac, Why is it important to have investment in your city center, in your downtown?
3: Well, historically, that's where our infrastructure has been. And so you mentioned the ports. Um, But ports are still important, but also airports, rail hubs, um, government buildings, universities. Um, There's lots of infrastructure that we've historically put in those places. And just because um, everything's not going out you know through the great lakes out to the atlantic and to the world doesn't mean that they're still not very important um, we need our city centers um we need them socially they're places where uh, we celebrate they're places where we grieve uh, where we protest um, they're where lots of things happen um it's where our seats of government are it's 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 where all the activity is um and so even if we're talking about a modest downtown or a small town uh, main street um, we have these city centers um, where humans come together to conduct their business, you know, be it economic, legal, um, educational, et cetera. So, um, you know, we need them. Uh, they're not they're not something that's going to go away with remote work or um with the ways that technology is changing, how we relate to
0: one another. Yeah, I think even going through the throes of the pandemic, people realize how important it is to have community, to have people that you can be close to. But still, there's always seems to be this push-pull between uh, being closeness with people, being around folks, and then just wanting to get the heck away to your own space when you feel like doing something else. So that leads me to the question about density. Does city density matter? And if so, why? Is there, How do we figure out the best balance there for density in our cities?
3: So density is incredibly important, and when I teach about this, one thing that I tell students is that if, you know, the entire world were at New York density, we could fit the entire world into something the size of Texas. Um, which is kind of remarkable when you think about it, like just how undense we are actually. We we all think of density as this problem um, and that somehow we're going to get to some point in which it's uncomfortable and it's not good. Um, But actually, we actually can't run cities without some density. So, you know, uh, businesses will not locate. So think about a supermarket. They're not going to locate where there's not enough carrying capacity to support that store. So you have to have enough residents within certain number of square miles of that supermarket for them to do that. For you have multiple supermarkets, same thing. School districts make the same choices around how many schools to support um, whether we need to take some offline or add some. Um, and so you can't have that infrastructure. You can't run bus lines, you can't run train lines without a certain level of density. And so too low and you can't get the services that actually make cities really interesting and dynamic. Um, too few services, too large, you know, too much density, and then it gets chaotic. Yeah. Um. And so there's no magic number um, to say, well, this is the right thing. Uh, some of this is very contextual. So what's comfortable to people in Manila, which is the densest, you know, kind of human part of the human settlement in the world, um, is not okay for people in Miami who think that that's, you know, too dense, but that's compared to Manila, it's nothing. Right. Um, right. So, it, so it's, con- it's very contextual.
0: You know, that's interesting you bring that up, because I think bringing up an example like Manila, then we know that it is feasible. But then we also know that the uh, standard of living in Manila is not exactly what folks would be shooting for over here with the resources that we have now. Notwithstanding try our, any efforts to make Manila a, a great place to live. Also, the question I would have then is you can get to a point where it's so dense, then, that people... Uh, maybe maybe there's some inefficiencies maybe people aren't quite as comfortable there uh, regardless of, of where you're at so I guess my question for you would be what have you seen in terms of your studies or cities around America is there a point where places can get too dense and folks have moved to uh, move back the other way or should we just be shooting for more density because there's still a lot that we can uh, ring out of the ring out of the rag there so to speak
3: well there's nuance there and so when we say density um we can say that I like a dense walkable neighborhood and then that that's not so painful. Um, a place where people, where you have a dense neighborhood and everyone has a car, that's not so fun. Right. Um, and so there's something to be said for, um, you know, are there green spaces, are there sidewalks, um, are there kind of moments of respite in the chaos um, versus just every inch is occupied by a business or a home, um, a unhoused person that's not so pleasant. And so there's something to be said for what kind of experience of density can we imagine? Um, and so there's some, and I'm gonna mention a couple of times in our conversation, you know, where I currently live, I know some listeners may not like to hear this, uh, but Columbus actually has gotten many neighborhoods quite right in terms of the sizing and the density of them. And so they're not so overwhelming um, that they're unmanageable, but they're not so undense that they're not interesting. And so right in the middle, um, or we can talk about a certain. Uh, I man, I would probably just I would shoot at a number um, of about fifteen hundred people per square mile, you know, or up. Um, but once you start getting to ten thousand people per square mile, you know, New York kind of levels, it gets uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that you police parking, and the way you know who has a driveway, who doesn't, um, where there are parking decks, things like that, how much transportation infrastructure, all of that actually shapes that experience. And so. We can actually do a lot with density if we actually change the experience um, and we change what we own and how we actually live in all spaces.
0: It's interesting that you say that, because when I was speaking with my friends in Ann Arbor, they said Columbus does absolutely nothing correctly. So... Seems like I'm getting stuff backwards there. Ohio State they, they, negative. They oh. would they would say that. Oh. Um
3: and, and, and I'll and I'll say um, I was at Michigan for ten years. I have great affection for the university and for many of the people there. Um, shout out to my friend Benelda Call, who runs the greatest Indian restaurant over in, in Ann Arbor. Um, part of them. but um yeah, they get they, Ann Arbor gets a lot right. Columbus gets a lot right. All right. Um, I would say one thing that Columbus gets very right are the amenities that actually stitch the neighborhoods together. And so the bike paths infrastructure here is incredible. Um, and it has actually drawn people into the city and. Around those bike paths that actually you could use to actually bike commute um, across the city and across the region, really.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and so, you know, in city planning, you know, I try to tell my students there's no absolute. We can't say that there's, you know, one city's all good, one city's all bad, you know, this person's all good, all bad. Um, they got it all right, they got it all wrong. You know, there's no such thing. It's, it's too nuanced um, um, for us to kind of make those characterizations. Um, but I do think that there are certain things that some cities do get a little more correct or you know kind of more comfortable for their residents than others
0: It's good to hear that you have the U of M connection. We can keep the interview going now. That makes me feel really happy as we're speaking with (laughs) Professor Harley Etienne, Associate Professor of City and Regional Planning at The Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, whenever you have a discussion about changing the way a city works and operates, the idea of gentrification always comes up. So from a city planning perspective, in terms of the work that you've done, Uh, How can city planners ensure that increasing urban density doesn't inadvertently lead to gentrification or displacement of residents who have already been living in these spaces?
3: It's a great question. Um, I would say that it's hard to say. Um, Number one, planners don't have a lot of power. People often overestimate how much power we have to do very much. Um, We work for city managers and mayors and city councils and the public and so we don't unilaterally kind of stop anything from happening. Um, And we're working in a market environment where people will speculate and buy things that we can't stop them from doing. Um, We can only regulate whether or not they um, comply with city codes. That's really pretty much what we can do. Um, Gentrification is a really complex term and um, everyone assumes like, hey, there's you know, a young woman walking a dog at 6 a.m., it must be gentrified. It's like, well, that's not really a marker. Um, million dollar properties, well, that's not also not a marker. Um, it's possible that a lot of communities work very hard to preserve and improve their communities. Um, neighborhood improvement is not necessarily gentrification. Um, at the same time, on the other end, a lot of people assume any displacement is gentrification. Neighborhoods are life cycles. You can have generations of people, a generation or cohort of people who move in. Um, and they simply age out and move on, um, and to Florida or the South or the West, and it's not maybe quite what we're thinking. Um, the one thing that we can agree on in the definition of gentrification, the debates about it, is that gentrification uh, represents reinvestment. Uh, so it's capital coming back in to take advantage of something. Something's underpriced, undervalued, and they're taking advantage of it. And that could be because that group, a cohort, moved on, um, or it could be for some other reason. Um, but oftentimes it's a confluence of things that makes gentrification. We can, how we define it, happen? And it's usually, I would say, ten things. You know, not one thing. There's no silver bullet. This is this is the thing that's making it happen. Um, however, there are some legal things that we can do in terms of link community land trusts and benefits agreements. Um, to kind of slow down the kind of exploitation that might happen in a particular neighborhood. Um, and by exploitation, I mean that someone's going to come in and buy something, you know, kind of you know rock dollar bottom, uh, rock bottom a dollar of value, and then kind of you know flip it and turn it into something else. We can try to slow that down, but we can't really stop it. we're in a free market system, and so if someone sees an opportunity. That's not completely bad. We do want people to reinvest. Um, it's whether or not other people also have the opportunity to not just the, the wealthiest among us, but other people also have the chance to kind of stay in place and kind of benefit from the rising tide in that community, particularly when they've worked so hard to preserve it.
0: Yeah, I think um, that's right. I think that that's really right. And the reason I'm jumping in a little bit here is because when you talk about, like, a lot of people think about, uh, you know, the the person who has the most resources, maybe jumping in and spending a lot of money to buy up uh, depressed assets, as as you're referring to a little bit there. The community, maybe knowing a little bit more, maybe moving more slowly to develop and see what kind of things work here, what kind of things work there, that might be more beneficial. Oh, that idea didn't work quite as well. Maybe we can try another one. And one thing that I think comes up, especially in a place like Detroit or even Pontiac is underutilized spaces. Maybe there are areas that we can work on in terms of getting more out of these declining spaces, making them more vibrant, more beneficial for our community. Uh, can city? How do you think cities could best accomplish that or do that with some spaces that we think, hey, there could be a little bit more development uh, here for the benefit of the community?
3: There's a growing conversation within planning circles about third spaces, and so leading up into the 1960s, you know, the civil rights movement really wouldn't have happened without the presence of third spaces. And so, third spaces being first space being your home, second space being your workspace um, or school space, um, but then the third space being this community space, so a church, community center, you know, that we had these third spaces where people got to get the Elks Lodge, the you know, whatever, the, the third space where we were kind of social. Um, And so we've actually had fewer of those kind of over time. And so it's possible that we can think not just as a place to kind of rent or sell condos or housing or a place to put in restaurants um, and places to consume, but third spaces where we're social with one another. Um, And so if we're thinking about a place that's been, uh, that has depressed value and could increase in value, but in the interim before we get there, you know, would that be a third space where people are social
2: yeah.
3: um and where people can do things i mean it could be anything from local organizing to um just being communal you know just a, a re, where you know book clubs meet where dating groups meet where kids you know have recreation centers um and i'm not saying just in a traditional brick and mortar you know place where we have pools and and basketball groups which is important but also but there are other things third spaces were actually much more adaptable Um, And we have so much fewer of them. It's actually detrimental to us as a society to not have those third spaces.
0: Yeah. You said where dating groups meet. I will gladly go to where those places are. And right now, bringing you in the conversation, it's Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
2: Well, good day. Good day. Uh, Exciting conversation. Uh, Just to the professor, could you bring some clarity to my mind about what they're talking about when they say the theory or the concept of 15-minute cities? Sure. and have you run across the fact uh maybe you have got a sister like i do that everything's a conspiracy that uh, they're taking this down the rabbit hole also but uh i'm sure what i've read uh, 15 minute
3: cities is a good concept comments
0: please thank you dennis go ahead sure. professor yeah.
3: sure so it's actually not a new concept it's actually fairly old um and so it's just kind of in new packaging but the 15 minute neighborhood is basically, you could imagine that you could walk um, to everything you might need within 15 minutes. And so we're thinking supermarket, a transit access, we're thinking school, healthcare, childcare. Um, and uh, I grew up in Boston and that's what we had. Um, and so all of the nodes, the centers of, our, of our, our neighborhoods were squares. They were literally called squares. And that's where you have multiple churches, you had the Woolworths, you know, um, the train stop, um, the bus stop, um, ice cream shop, you know, the convenience store, child care, healthcare center. It was all there. And my mother could literally tell me, go get me some limes. Oh, I forgot. Go back and get butter. Um, and it was safe enough for me to do that. Um, and so if you can imagine um, us intentionally kind of creating um, nodes within cities, where the neighborhoods have a center and that you can cluster a lot of the amenities that you would need. And so you don't have to cross town to get milk. You don't have to cross town to get clothes. You don't have to cross town to visit your doctor, that you could literally walk there. Um, And that most of this, and that you would not need a car. You could drive if you wanted to, but you wouldn't need to because it would be so walkable and so close. It would be there, but also there would be the infrastructure within that 15 minute neighborhood that you wouldn't have segments of the neighborhood that lacked sidewalk infrastructure. Um, so that it was possible to actually make that walk um, between your home and the center of your neighborhood. Um, and so it's, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I know that people are, you know, tempted to uh, think that this is some kind of, you know, conspiracy, but um, this is not a new concept in planning at all. I mean, this goes back, you know, not just the past century, but possibly, you know, to the beginning uh, of the founding of the United States, because Boston was in that, that form, that Baroque design and city, that existed, you know, when Boston was almost 370 years old. You know, some of that infrastructure existed then. Uh, Mills mm-hmm. were holdovers from things that Boston borrowed from European cities, London in particular, which also has squares.
0: When we return, we will continue our conversation with Professor Etienne. And I do want to get into a little bit about his work with the Midtown Cultural Center Planning Initiative. We'll tell you more about what that is, how it fit in with Detroit, and what experiences he learned from working on the project when we return on Detroit Today. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin in for Stephen Henderson, and we are speaking with Associate Professor of City and Regional Planning at The Ohio State University, Professor Harley Etienne, talking about what it takes, uh, the importance of cities, investment in cities, city centers, density of cities, and what are some of the ways that we can make our cities a little bit better. And one of the projects you worked on, Professor, is the Midtown Cultural City Planning Initiative. And I want to learn a little bit more about that because i know there's going to be people listening out there who aren't so familiar with the project so can you let us know what the midtown cultural center planning initiative was uh, what you did on the project and what you learned from that experience
3: sure Uh, the project is basically trying to revive an idea that Detroit would have a cultural center um, that would connect many of its cultural locate and connect many of its cultural institutions in one space. Um, And so many people may not know the original home of the Detroit um, Institute of the Arts was actually on Jefferson um, and it moved to that location um, about 100 years ago, um, sited right across the street from uh, the Carnegie donated library, um, the Detroit library. Um, And so there was always this intention that you would have a collection of museums and civic institutions in one space and beautifully uh, architecturally beautiful and well connected. And so there have been about three different attempts to kind of make it a campus. Um, and kind of actually connect them. And so Wayne State kind of wasn't an idea. It was really um, just the city's high school and then became college and then now a major university. Um, And so that becomes another piece of the puzzle, which is how do we actually put them together? Because we do have a cohesive campus on Wayne State, um, but we don't necessarily have that. And so you can have someone have the experience of going to the Charles Wright and never going to the the DIA because they don't see them as connected or go to the DIA and never go to the Charles Wright Science Mm -hmm. Center, et cetera. Uh, and so, this uh, led by uh, Midtown Detroit um, and the 13 cultural institutions there, how do we stitch them together? And so, the project really um, through design, but also co governance, how do we put the institutions together? And so, they're still going to be independent institutions, but how do we see them as a collective whole so that people could imagine going to the Detroit Public Library, which is a gem? I don't think people realize how great of a gem it is. Um, and see themselves spending the day there, going to the DIA, going to Charles Wright, the Scarab Club, you know, the Detroit Historical Museum and seeing them as a cohesive whole and having to traverse Woodward Avenue and Cass Avenue um, and John R and making that just a bit more walkable and more of a more civil kind of deliberate, slow experience, not just, I'm here to kind of grab a book at the library and leave or go to a reception of the DIA and leave or go to the Charles Wright for dinner and leave. Um, but you could really do that. So there's several elements to the project, and I, you know, I know we don't have time to go through all of them, but really one of them was uh, there was a square, a band, a necklace, um, and then um, lots of kind of natural features that made this a much slower space, a much more green, uh, manageable space for people to actually connect them. And so one thing that happened a lot was people would always relate their location, the different institutions, to the DIA. Um, versus like we're behind the DA, we're across from DAA versus we're our own thing um, and that everyone has a front door um, to this in their own right. Um, and how can we kind of equalize the experiences between the institutions um, and kind of put them a little bit more on level footing and get them all more appreciated. Um, but then make it more of a cohesive experience so that you know you see that there are these racial differences and economic differences between who went to what institution, um, and that that shouldn't be the case. We want people to kind of actually see this direct link between the historical museum and the library, the library in Wayne State. Um, and we learned a lot through the process on how that actually happens naturally. That Wayne State students go to the second floor kind of um, mosaic room, you know, on dates. You know, yeah. they go. They yeah, go, they yeah. go to that second. Um, people go to the DA for dates. They go to the Charles Wright for dates. You know, um, and so. How can we make that more of a thing, a more deliberate, intentional kind of experience? Yeah. And
0: I think this is a great idea, right? Because there are so many cool places that you do want more people to get to. If they can fit them all in, maybe more rich, enriching cultural experience for us all. And that's why I'm going to have to make sure to have you back on to dive in a little bit more into that project. But I do have a couple of calls that I want to make sure I can get in here now. So we're going to start with Robert in Detroit. Robert, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
2: Hi um I'm a little bit familiar with the projects you were just discussing, and I, I think it sounds amazing. Some of the great cities that I've been to have um, green spaces where you know people can just hang out in the park and I don't see that a lot over here. Um, I'm thinking about you know um, Cleveland and I'm thinking about um, washington d c places like that, where work and cultural areas are right next to each other. But my main reason for calling was you know when are these things going to happen? Um, the other thing is especially for the detroit riverfront i'm so you know sad that you know it's taking decades and decades and decades we have number one river walk in the country a couple years in a row but we have parking lots and there isn't really nice housing or parks and stuff like that that they feed off of that mm. and I, you know one wonder, wonder is it going to happen in my lifetime because i remember when they were building the renaissance center and um it, it sure the cement factories are gone but
0: not so nice. Yeah. You know, I wonder when you bring that up about housing on the riverfront. Like, do we want housing on the riverfront? And if we do, where, how much should it take up? I think that is an interesting question about the development, because you can go there and walk right now, get on the carousel, have some ice cream, see a show, do some yoga. So uh, it, it would wonder, like, what, what does it mean to have a fully developed riverfront? I bring the question to you, Professor Etienne. What do you take or what's your make on Robert's uh, in Detroit's question?
3: Well, on the riverfront, I mean, I I think it's one of Detroit's assets. You know, when I lived in Michigan, I would take people to dinner in Detroit all the time, and sometimes we'd go to the Rensselaer, and they would just be in awe, like, I can't believe we're looking over at Canada. Like, they just don't think riverfront when they think Detroit. Um, And so the idea that you have this really wonderful, um, amazing waterfront that extends, you know, quite a ways, there's a lot of opportunity for housing, recreation. There's a lot of opportunities there. So um, I don't think it's a bad idea. And we're not going to be subject to in the Midwest um, to the same things that they're going to be subject to in Miami with sea level rise. I mean, there are going to be some impacts, but it's not going to be the same kind of thing. So more waterfront housing is possible here, um, and it's possible to do quite a bit more. There is a tipping point, at which, you know, it's too much and it's, you know, unpleasant. You know, we're talking before about density. Um, we do want this to be a nice kind of green shared space. And so too much housing, too much privatizing, too private housing could actually interrupt that. Um, but let me, the second question about um, how long it's going to take, um, You know, being a planner is kind of knowing that you may not see what you, the seeds you plan.
2: Mm.
3: You just may, you may not see it. And a lot of it might be the market, some of it might be politics. And so it's a long thing there's a long tail. And so some of this is about fundraising, some of this is about governance. Um, Some of this is about politics and kind of how do you line up the political support to get, you know, get people behind something. Um, But you also have a city in Detroit, and I'm, you know, as an African-American faculty member who studies some of this stuff, I'm very sensitive to this. Should we spend this money on an art center when there's so many other needs? And so it's a balance, which is how do we do both? And so can you make the argument and, and provide proof that this will actually help in terms of increased tax revenue that supports schools, like you have to make the argument to pull the thread all the way through to align with political and mm-hmm. economic support to kind of make it happen. And that's that's often very difficult.
0: Yeah, it, it, we are experiencing it right now. And Robert in Detroit, what a great question and point to bring into this conversation. Thanks again. And it's something that we're going to be looking back into because the riverfront is something that I think a lot of us here really do care about. We're going to move now to Tim in Detroit. Tim, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
4: Yeah, hi. Uh, I just want to relay. I've I've had a. I I live in a part of the city that's being gentrified, and I knew it was coming. I had a couple of caring experiences in in the last four months. And I I run into people who question, why am I in a space that I, I, I live in? And these people just got here, and I've lived here for years. I think I have to bite my tongue sometimes because I don't have a Big tolerance for ignorance, but people need to be cautious about how they talk to people.
0: Yeah. Can I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So you're a delivery guy. You'll be driving and. No, deli- no, 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 Okay. Gotcha. I am not. that's what she assumed. All right There. I Thank you. I live in this space. Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. That's just, that's astonishing to me that you can be in your own location talking to somebody who's your neighbor, and they just make an assumption about you there. Uh, I can only imagine how that would make you feel. Um, Tim, in terms of your experience there, is this something that's happening pretty frequently, or how do you normally react to it? What, what does this I, I, result? I, I,
4: again, I, I, I've lived here for many years, mm-hmm. but I knew it was coming as, as the area is gentrified. But these people come in with these assumptions and their ignorance. And I, and I don't have a lot of tolerance for ignorance, but yeah. people just need to be cautious of how they relate to people. Because you have people here that have been here, they've done things, they've accomplished things.
0: Yeah, I think that also gets to getting to know your neighbors and forming communities. I leave the comment to you, uh, Professor Etienne.
3: Sure. Well, I'm gonna. I'll say t- I'll mention two books uh, as a way of just answering the question. Um, one of them is Aaron Foley, Detroit native. He wrote a book um, a couple of years ago, "How to Live in Detroit Without Being a Jackass." <laughs> um, you know, deliberately to those people who come to Detroit and you know kind of exploit the economic opportunities that you know there and affordable housing and other things and you know, just aren't respectful of the long history and people who have really been there a long time. The second, uh, Joseph Margulies, wrote a book about um, a gentrified neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island. Basically, the title of the book says it all. Thanks for everything. Now get out. Um, And so a lot of times people who really stuck with the neighborhood through the thick and the thin um and worked really hard to improve it and, and protect it from decline um then find themselves as the outsiders as you know newcomers come in and say hey you know now you can't sell water you can't play music you can't barbecue you no know, more block parties um and there's that tension and so there's something to be said for um, understanding how, you know, this is where we can talk about gentrification, about gentrification, not just being about economic reinvestment, but also about displacement of the culture to say that now, you know, we don't want the church music on Sunday morning. We don't want the block parties um, and that it's tough to how would we stop someone from coming in and kind of being disruptive um, as a new resident.
0: Yeah. Yeah, very important. And a very important uh, experience. Thank you so much, Tim, in Detroit for calling and sharing that. I think you know some people hear the term, they don't really know what the experience is like. Tim, I think you put a great button on it. Thanks again for calling. You know, Professor Etienne, one thing that you mentioned, and I know I'm running up here towards the end of the show, was uh, about creating the ability to walk to your grocery store and just walk back, for example. One of the things I wonder about, and I'm sure people, some people out there would think about with this is, maybe the reason we don't have all of these smaller grocery stores is the theory that you gained more efficiency from having the big box store, so the prices go down on that. And Then now as technology goes up, for example, you can order something on Amazon, they'll deliver it right to your front door. They're thinking about having autonomous vehicles, maybe drones will start dropping stuff in, that will gain efficiencies where you can be a little bit more spread out. And still bring things perhaps even at a cheaper cost to you instead of needing to walk to a smaller store and and the difficulties that it can have with uh, creating these neighborhood venues. So what would your response be to someone who says that technology and efficiency together will allow us to do these things spread out a little bit more instead of having uh, these denser cities? My first question is who's saying it? You know, um, I suspect someone who owns the big box business.
3: There you go. So, I mean, so there's a question of efficient for whom Um, and we also have to talk about what we're actually getting. I mean, and so in terms of like healthy food, I mean, does that smaller market kind of source their food from local producers um, versus something that traveled, you know, three, 10,000 miles to get to you? Um, There's a question, you know, about the quality of that food and is that what you really want? Um, So, you know, efficient may not always be better. And so I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-efficiency. Um, I think that, you know, just, you know, things move on and you have to kind of go with the times. And there are ways that we can use the technology smartly, um, you know, and can actually improve in people's lives at the same time. Um, we we should peek under the hood and see what we're actually getting because it's possible that the big box store isn't going to employ the 16-year-old, you know, at the supermarket and kind of teach them a work ethic and give them some disposable cash that could be very important like it's not just kind of i'm getting lettuce at a cheaper price there are you know there are other things to consider here and the benefits of having a small walkable neighborhood small entrepreneurs and businesses um, that that are really beneficial to the life of the community and for the actual health and wealth and well-being of the people who live within that 15-minute
0: neighborhood. Yeah, Professor Etienne, I really appreciate that point there that we're going to have to end it on the idea that you can't capture every benefit in monetary dollars and cents also as the community value. But thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. You're welcome. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox the technical director and engineer is Matthew Trebethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. The Detroit Today podcast is edited by Jack Philbray. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to share it with your friends.